I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of April 2021, and while we are in the midst of our Action April event month, uh, it is now that time of the month wherein we do our special Tales from the Shelf episode. Uh, and in joining me in this endeavor, uh, I have my good buddy Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast. How's it going, Brad? Oh, it's going great. You know, it feels like it's been a while since uh, we've done one of these. I don't know why. It's the same amount of time as it always is. But uh, I'm just I'm raring to go. I guess maybe that's it. Yeah, I mean your your hype levels are always a little up there, so it's hard <laughs> for me to catch up to you in that way. But uh, yeah, I funny enough, I feel the same way. I feel like mm-hmm. I haven't seen you in a while. But you know, it's probably been two weeks <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah. it's good that we're both eager to get going with this though so um folks at home if you're not aware of what a tales from the shelf episode is uh brad and i both have fairly substantial uh movie collections uh that would be dvds blu-rays and 4k discs all that shit um and being as we both have these large collections, I figured it'd be a good idea to give us, you know, some dedicated time to just talk about our collections, uh, swap some war stories about uh, adventures in collecting movies and such. Uh, so from month to month, we generally have a theme uh, to keep us from talking endlessly about our films, because like I said, we both have quite a few to talk about. Uh, and the theme this month, uh, I have decided, um, that's unusual, normally Brad helps me out with that, uh, is a... Uh, <laughs> standout scenes um so the the concept here is that we're going to be talking about movies that when when you put it into the player like when you put the movie on you already have like a a specific or like very special scene in the movie picked out in your head that you you know you want to get to that you know you're excited to get to so the movie may or may not be great doesn't really matter all this all the this movie that we're going to be talking about uh, has to do is just have one sequence or moment that that makes it special in some way uh, and as we tend to do with these episodes we're just kind of basically play show and tell going back and forth here so uh who wants to go first brad is it going to be me or is it going to be you i mean uh if, if you're if you're willing i guess i can kick it off i'm, I'm fine with that well, you know how I like you to go first, Brad, because uh, this way I get to follow your lead and it makes everything very symmetrical. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'll take the lead. I, I don't mind taking the lead. All right. Thanks. Thank, thanks for falling on the sword, bud. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't even think that this kind of uh, pairs well with um, Action April, but, uh, you know, a lot of standout sequences probably will be action sequences. It's just kind of a go-to uh, where... You know, the movie will maybe not be great or it'll be, you know, decent, but then it's got those moments of action that really take it to the next level. So I'm going to start with an action sequence because, you know, action April. Um, And this one, I think the more I think about it, I think this is the best example I have of like your uh, your question you gave me, your, uh, you know, thing you told me to do in that this was for a while. It was my. demo disc for my uh sound system i would i would have people over and this was i mean when did this movie this movie came out like almost eight years ago now so this was a little while ago but i would have people come over check out the sound system and i would put on one sequence from this movie and that is the somewhat hated the lone ranger directed by gore verbinski (laughs) 
<laughs> which um, I feel like he comes up on almost every one of these episodes for some reason. Um, Gore Verbinski, you and I have a soft spot for the guy. I know this movie pretty much got trashed when it came out. And I actually, I feel like when I first saw it in theaters, I was kind of piling on. I was I was trashing the movie as well. I was like, it's so long. There's just so many boring moments in it. It's just way too stretched out. Everything in the middle is boring. And I kind of still feel that way. But the so- sort of opening and especially the climactic train sequence in this movie is so good. It is so much fun. It's obviously, it's very CG heavy, but I think like, I don't know, Gore Verbinski, he somehow makes that very exciting because it's, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek, comical, and I think it's a fantastic sequence. And I've probably watched it uh, more times than I've watched uh, some like truly great movies that I'll be highlighting. That sequence is one I always would go back to and uh, I would have people over and say, you got to check out my new sound system. And it would kind of be me of a, a way to plug the Lone Ranger a little bit and say, I know this movie got uh, bashed at the time of release, but there's some there's some good stuff in here. So check this out. Oh man, I'm I'm so glad you brought up uh, Gore Verbinski and the, the Lone <laughs> Ranger. Um, yeah, funny enough, he he does seem to come up on pretty much every occasion that Brad and I have conversations about movies. Uh, Gore is great. <laughs> uh, I think he is anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, ever ever since I saw Mouse Hunt when I was a kid. Uh, he he gives me a reason to show up pretty much every time he makes a movie. Um, anytime I hear news of him working on something, I get interested, even if I'm legitimately disinterested in, in the premise. Like Rango, for instance. On paper, Rango sounded like utter shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I watched it, and I was like, yeah, that's kind of fun. <laughs> like, I kind of liked it. And uh, A Cure for Wellness, I've brought it up many times on the show. Um, kind of an underappreciated very much imperfect movie but absolutely gorgeous and i i think one of his strong suits might be like storyboarding like like his construction of his action scenes uh, he's not so big on like outright violence and whatnot um but he does have like an almost like jackie chan like quality in in how his action scenes come together mm-hmm. uh, it's like uh, a rube goldberg machine um if if you're familiar with those with what those look like like if yeah. you think back to some of those action set pieces in those pirates movies uh as long-winded as they would become um a lot of the action scenes in those movies tended to feature circumstances like bumping into each other and then leading like snowballing into bigger and crazier things and um i will say this much brad i have not seen the lone ranger i it's actually on my list of things i would like to see mostly because of who'd made it um, but also because of the music, um, the William Tell overture um, that serves as the Lone Ranger's theme music. Um, I think Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack as he's done for many other uh, Gore Verbinski films. And I've listened to that composition, like the 10 minute uh, piece of music that plays over the finale of that movie. And I know there's no way that the visuals can actually match, you know, some of the shit going on in my head. Um, but holy shit, the energy of that that music is absolutely wonderful. And when I think of like some of the trailer footage I saw for that movie with like the train stuff and all the zany antics and whatnot involving Tonto and the Lone Ranger, um, 
I, I feel like, yeah, like there there is a possibility that at least that part's probably good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. And it sounds like you can confirm that. Yeah. I mean, it's so good to the point where I've kind of, in a way, I think I've only probably watched the entire film maybe two or three times, but I, I like that, that bookend, those train sequences at the start and the end so much that I've kind of, whether it's actually like reevaluating the film and saying you know actually the middle of this film is actually not that bad or it's me just kind of like force feeding the middle of the film and saying like if the opening and closing are this good i have to at least get the middle to be watchable to like you know really justify my love of the lone ranger um so yeah i think it's definitely an underrated film not a great film but uh, i don't know how people could watch those two sequences and not think they're very well done they are a lot of fun especially like with the score i kind of remember just like the the when the score kicks in at the end there in the train sequence it really is kind of like uh just like triumphant like you really like it really gets you jazzed and like excited um so yeah that's a very good example of a standout sequence in a movie that maybe isn't as good as those two parts well now you're now you're really giving me a reason to check it out. Uh, I unfortunately don't own a like a, a really solid sound system, but I've always wanted to match like the visuals with that piece of music because I, I don't remember the first time I actually sat down and listened to it. I think I was actually in the middle of maybe listening to the soundtrack for A Cure for Wellness on like YouTube or something, and it bounced me from Benjamin Wallfish, who's like a started out as like an understudy to Hans Zimmer Mm -hmm. um, and it's now a you know an awesome composer unto himself and then I think it bounced me into that and I was like what the fuck is this and then I (laughs) and I didn't I didn't hit the next button I just let it play out for like I said 10 fucking minutes and I was like I was just I I was just like bouncing in my chair because it's that kind of piece of music like Mm -hmm. folks at home if you don't know what this composition is it's 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 like it's as high energy as it can get basically um and I man now I want to check that out (laughs) god damn it Brad yeah (laughs) well I already have too many movies to check out I mean you know if you're looking for a reason to bump it down on your watch list uh it does unfortunately uh star Army Hammer who has not been in uh good graces these days like this movie this movie (laughs) has really unfortunately cursed I think from just like tanking at the box office people just kind of like I feel like just it was the movie that came out that summer that critics just piled on. And I think it was the kind of thing where it's like a little unfair because it's like everybody starts shitting on the Lone Ranger. And I feel like that just kind of gets in the public conscious and or consciousness. And it's just like a thing where everybody that sees it shits on it and piles on it. And maybe unfairly, I'm sure, you know, it's not it's far from perfect movie. So I can understand people not liking it. But I think uh, it it deserves a. Uh, a second uh, look by some people and a first look by uh by you i guess yeah i mean i i like i said about all of his other movies gore verbinski does not make perfect films like they're grossly imperfect in a lot of ways they're intensely flawed but if you like what he does you like what he does um he his uh, his sets and costuming in particular tend to have a lot of love and care put into them sometimes that's enough it uh, goes a very long way. Um, having Hans Zimmer, you know, actually giving a shit in the composer's chair helps quite a bit as well. I can't confirm if Johnny Depp gave a shit on the set. Maybe, maybe not. 
Um, but yeah, it is a little bit of a cursed production because, like you said, it it almost is a meme in in mm-hmm. in the form of like people dismissing it. Because I, other than you, I don't know if I know anyone who's seen it, and yet everybody just kind of shrugs their shoulders and says, "I'm not interested," because they assume it to be like god awful. It's like, yeah. eh. I mean, I don't know if it cost Disney more than John Carter of Mars. <laughs> um, I don't think it was quite but, that bad. I don't think, um, but it was a pretty notorious flop for sure. Had a similar effect to many of the people's uh, careers that were involved in it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Army, Army Hammer has, you know, he's done really awesome things since then. But you know, in light of his his news kerfuffle stuff as of late, I don't know if we're gonna be seeing him again anytime no. soon. No, no, yeah. no, no. He's he's and, done. And, um, yeah, and in fact, I don't even know has has Gore Verbinski done anything since. Uh, well, Kurt. A Cure for Wellness was after this, I know. I think okay, that was his was. last film. Um, that was like 2013. Jeez. It might have, was it? Ago. Uh, yeah, maybe it was. Maybe 16. Maybe yeah, 16. Yeah, 15 or 16, I want to say. I could be wrong. But I, I think Even Lone so, Ranger was, was 2013. Either way, it was a while ago. So. Yeah, either way, it was a while ago. Yeah, he's overdue. Go for gore. Go for gore. <laughs> Go for gore. <laughs> Okay, well, I suppose the ball is to me. So, um, I have, I have an appropriate follow up to that, but I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> uh, so instead, I'm gonna go with something completely different. Uh, so I have here a Shout Factory disc of GI Joe the movie, and I believe this is from 1987 maybe 86 uh so this was a uh, hasbro and like sunbow uh animated feature uh that was kind of meant to be a little bit of a spiritual successor or a follow-up to transformers the movie from 1986 which i uh, you know did i think it did modest numbers it wasn't especially successful but you know it its lasting legacy is is incredible uh, it's one of my like one of the most precious films to me and basically an entire generation of people like me um whereas this movie not so much <laughs> this movie uh is mostly complete crap um it didn't have nearly the same level of thought care or enthusiasm put into it as the transformers film did um and it that even translates to like straight up just animation quality. Like Transformers the movie is actually a decently handsome animated film. Like it, it's not cutting edge by any means, uh, but it never looks outright crap. G.I. Joe the movie looks like utter crap for about 80% of the runtime. Um, it looks barely distinguishable from the, the weekly cartoon series, um, which had many, many cut corners uh, in terms of animation budget. And that's not good when we're talking about a quote-unquote feature film. Um, anyway, the reason I bring this movie up uh, is because the first five minutes of this movie are the most incredible fucking thing you will ever see. <laughs> like, if you have even even the loosest attachment to the 1980s version of the G.I. Joe franchise, like the, the 80s cartoon and, and toy line, uh, th- this is the epitome of, like, the idea of watching a child slam their toys together on the floor like like you can tell that the way they storyboarded the animation for the sequence was that they just like some producer's kid was given a whole bunch of gi joes and 
and he just slammed them together and they're like take notes <laughs> like i take note of all the things this kid's doing we need that in the movie um and yeah the animation quality the timing um because this as far as i know this is the only time you ever get the full uh gi joe theme song because of course they had the gi joe theme song for the cartoon it opened every episode and i think even closed it maybe like without lyrics or something but this one adds the cobra side of of the song that okay. makes it twice as fucking awesome because there's this <laughs> re, there's this chorus in the background basically half of the song is cobra uh t- like spelling out their master plan like we're all about evil and shit and then their their chorus is just the word cobra <laughs> so i used to i used to play airsoft with my friends like out in the woods and stuff and i had this one friend who i think i showed him the opening of this movie and uh, every time he'd shoot one of us he'd like dive into the bushes and just yell cobra <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah Brad, i think i've told you before brad if you haven't watched the opening five minutes of this and you can easily find it on youtube um, it is the single like most spectacular display of G.I. Joe awesomeness you'll ever see. And unfortunately, it's just the first five minutes. The rest of the movie is complete crap. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's unfortunate because I, I was looking up on Blu-ray.com the, uh, the price of that Shout Factory disc still going for about 20 bucks. So you'd say probably not uh, worth investing in the, uh, the disc if uh, only the opening is worth watching. Yeah, especially if you don't have the nostalgia for the franchise, uh, because like technically I'm I'm a little too young uh, for the for the '80s uh, GI Joe cartoon. Uh, I think I got reruns of it after the fact, and we didn't really have GI Joe t- toys when I was a kid. Um, but my brother and I would you know sneak in viewings of the show every once in a while. But like I said, this was mostly after the fact. Um, uh, so even for me, it's not something that's especially precious to me. Um, but I forget how or when I first saw this movie, but just just those first five minutes, it was just absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would highly encourage you to look it up. In fact, like maybe I need to find a way to expose this to more people because it's something that I bring up in conversation every once in a while for like best opening sequences. And I'm like, you haven't seen that? Well, you need to amend your list, goddammit. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll have to check it out. I do love a good opening sequence, so I'm intrigued. Yeah, uh, you, you, you can find it on YouTube. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you to, to buy the disc. I mean, supporting Shout Factory, good on you, but uh, like I said, if you don't have the nostalgia factor attached to the property, uh, it's probably going to be something you put in your player one time and then hang it up, call it good. Hey, if I even get it in the player one time, that'll be better than 65% of my collection. (laughs) (laughs) Your words, not mine. (laughs) Um, But cool, yeah, I'm I'm curious to check it out. I've never really dived into, like, those 80s toy movies. It was all kind of just before my time. Like, I've never seen Transformers the movie. Um, I feel like there were, weren't there some more around that time? Maybe Maybe those are the only two. No, there there were others. I mean, you could you could say Care Bears fits into that category as where as well. Uh, they had a couple of those movies. I, I think the GoBots had like a direct-to-video one. Um, fun fact: I think GoBots actually technically predated the Transformers, though nobody cares because yeah. GoBots kind of suck. 
Yeah. It's like, yeah. why would I watch the jet robot show when I can watch the one where they turn to trucks and fucking cities and robots? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all they do is turn to jets and fight rock monsters. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I do kind of want to watch those movies at some point. I don't know if I can... I don't know if I'd marathon them all together. Do you like no. you know, an 80s toy movie marathon? No, you would, you would get very tired of that very fast. And especially because the entire point of those products existing is to sell you other products that no longer exist for the most part. Well, they, they certainly do exist. Like G.I. Joe and Transformers are still very much going strong. But um, the only one that I would, I would encourage you to check out like in earnest is uh, Transformers the movie uh, because the everything about that it, it kind of summarizes me as a person i feel like maybe you'd know me just that much more brad <laughs> if you just watch that movie <laughs> that's that's the one I, I feel like i do need to watch even though i kind of know what happens already um i do need to check that one out yeah, orson wells's final farewell to the silver screen <laughs> r.i.p yeah i'm not kidding that's the last thing he did <laughs> as an actor <laughs> I think I think that's how I would have wanted to go out on. I think I really Absolutely. do. Absolutely, as the voice of a sentient planet monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, anyway, I I honestly didn't have a whole lot to say about GI Joe the movie. I just it's it's my PSA for this episode. That God damn it, more people need to see the opening five minutes of GI Joe the movie. So, um, ballless to you, Brad. Uh, what you got? All right, you know, I am going to mention a movie that I think falls into these uh, parameters of standout sequence, but I got to be honest, the main reason I'm bringing this up is just because I am dying to rewatch this movie, and I just have not had the time. I I have wanted to watch this movie so bad over the last, like, three weeks. I don't know where it came from, but all of a sudden, I was just dying to rewatch from my boy M. Night Shyamalan, Signs, which I... I think I've come to terms with the fact that I just straight up love this movie. And it's not even like a movie where it's like, oh, I love it warts and all. I don't even think this movie has many warts. I love this movie. And hearing the people that, you know, hate it because of the plot and the ending just drives me up the wall to no end. Um, Because, like, how can you watch this movie and watch that? I think it's Brazilian birthday party or wherever in South America the birthday party is, how can you watch that sequence and come out of this movie and be like, oh, the ending was stupid, that movie sucks. That sequence is so effective. I, I, I don't know. I was pretty young when I saw this. I saw it in theaters. And that, that sequence, still to this day, like I think is genuinely scary. Just the way that the alien walks out from the bushes when it rewinds and pauses on it. Joaquin's reaction, the way the the score ramps up right at that moment, it is so good. It is one of my, I think, one of my favorite, like, sort of, like, horror movie moments. It is one that I always go back to. And there's a ton of um, great sequences and signs. Like, I, I love uh, Mel Gibson in the cornfield where you see the leg going into the corn. That's super creepy. Uh, the alien in the pantry is great. Like there's some awesome sequences, but I think that birthday party scene is perfect. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a perfect scene in uh, an awesome, awesome movie that I have not watched in quite a while. I want to say it's definitely been like five or six, maybe even seven years. So I have just been dying to rewatch this and, uh, hopefully soon, hopefully soon. 
Well, now that you have it off the shelf, Brad, you're halfway there. So maybe yeah. maybe this is the push you need to put it in the player and sit back and enjoy. Um, yeah, I know you're a big fan of M. Night. Uh, I I kind of fell off with him, uh, though I with like without having any like hands-on experience uh, i i still do defend him uh, for mm-hmm. the most part because um, i know pe- people were highly dismissive of him at a certain cutoff point in his career uh, but but it seems like he's he's come back fairly strong especially with that uh the the servant or servant yeah the apple tv plus tv show yeah which i, I was a big fan big big fan of season one season two mm, not as good but uh i still enjoy it but uh it was definitely you can feel his hands all over it and uh that first season i i was a huge surprise for me yeah um i, I guess i was gonna call that like your psa for this episode but it sounds like mm, only half <laughs> yeah i mean we'll see it was just a little bit of a step down a little bit of a step down for season two all righty but um, yeah, I've I've shared this story before, so I'll just gloss over it. But um, I have a good friend who uh, saw signs in the very best way possible, where uh, he he went in completely blind, no marketing, no buzz. He just saw the marquee and he gave the the ticket taker his money, and he just walked in. He didn't know who was in it, who made it, what it was, just the title, and uh, he said it was mind blowing. He had such a fantastic time watching it, such that. Uh, he's kind of made that his process um, for a lot of movies these days where it's like he's he is unafraid of the idea of going into something completely blind because it's done right by him at least once um yeah i saw signs in the theater uh, when i was fairly young and absolutely uh that that scene at the birthday party <laughs> like i think everybody in the theater was like Who's <laughs> um, joaquin's reaction in particular i think helped it quite a bit like, mm-hmm. Doesn't he like put his hands on his head? Just like, oh! I think if he covers his mouth, he's like, oh! <laughs> but it's not like a, a scream or anything. It's just like a, oh! <laughs> like, like it felt very genuine. Or it's yeah. Like, yeah, I could totally see myself doing exactly the same thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the soundtrack for that movie, um, I can't remember all of it, but I do remember moments like that where where the action gets punctuated, where it was highly effective. Um, mm-hmm. Is that the case with most of his movies? You know, I'm trying to remember the score. I think Unbreakable's got a good score. Absolutely, um, yeah. I, it's been way too long since I've seen The Sixth Sense. I don't remember the score in a lot of his other movies. I know he works with, or he had worked with James Newton Howard for yeah. a lot of his movies. I don't think, I don't know who did the score for, like, Split and Glass. I can't remember the score in that one, so it might not have been him. But, um, yeah, I, I the score is awesome. Actually, now that we mention it, I'm remembering now that I actually brought up signs on our stupendous scores episode. Uh, so I've double dipped on this one. I, I try to avoid doing that, but maybe that's why I had signs on the brain. I've had it on the brain ever since we did that episode. Oh, well, now you definitely got to check it out because you've brought it up twice and you still haven't even watched it. I need it. to. I need to. If I bring it up in a future episode and I say it's still been several years since I've seen it, you got to tell me to just that night go watch it drop everything i have going on and go watch signs yeah i'll i'll like drive out to your place throw eggs at your window or some shit (laughs) (laughs) you got you got something you gotta do (laughs) just go stand go stand on my roof like really uh scarily until i notice you there and then hop off and run into a field no i'll orchestrate a children's birthday party invite you to it 
and then put on like a, a rubber brown suit, like monster suit, <laughs> and, and, and casually stroll by yeah. from the bushes, yeah. <laughs> and you'll know what's up. Um, but uh, before we move on, though, um, I actually I don't know if you've done this for your show, so I hope this isn't asking you to reiterate too much. But what was your verdict on Glass? Um, I haven't seen it uh, myself, and I don't care about spoilers. I can't speak for the audience, but what what did you think of it? I wasn't super crazy about it. I don't remember much from it, to be honest. Um, just was a little underwhelming. Not that memorable. Um, you know, I liked the characters in it. Um, it was fun seeing Samuel Jackson, James McAvoy, and Bruce Willis was kind of trying in that one a little bit. Still seemed kind of <laughs> checked out. Um, but I would say out of that trilogy, the quote-unquote trilogy, Glass is definitely my least favorite. Um, but I mean, if you like the other films, I'd say it's still worth checking out. Okay. Fair enough. Um, it's not high on my list of things I'd like to check out, but I did see Split. I did kind of like Split. Uh, so I'll probably get to it at some point. Mm -hmm. I'm not paying for it though. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be like me Um, when, uh, Black Friday of whatever year Glass came out, I was hyped all Thanksgiving dinner. I was telling people I'm going to Best Buy. Glass 4K is only $14.99. Maybe it was nine. It might have been no, no, nine ninety nine, nine ninety nine, nine ninety nine glass four K. I was flipping. I was I scarfed down my dinner to get to Best Buy. I was hyped. <laughs> and then you brought it home, and you're like, "Well, that was okay." Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'd actually seen it before then, so I still haven't watched that four K. So, <laughs> well, Brad, God damn it, <laughs> we, we got we got to train you up, man. We got to get you some new habits. Yeah, I'm calling it now, like we. we you got to have yourself like a Shyamalan love fest or something. Like, I'm, like I'm thinking about sit it. Sit down one weekend and catch the fuck up. <laughs> catch I, up I'm, on your cinema. <laughs> I'm definitely considering it. I, the only issue is like, even though it's been so long, I I don't really feel like revisiting The Sixth Sense. Even though I haven't seen I've only seen it once. I'm just like, oh, I'd have to kick it off with that. Uh, I don't know. So Well, no, like, like uh, let's do modern era Shyamalan. Okay. So like yeah. maybe maybe from like the visit on or something, I which I also he, haven't seen. He oh you haven't seen the visit? Yeah, I, I think Kyle liked it though. The visit is fun. The visit is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, yeah, and he's got a new one coming out this summer. Oh, he does. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think it's called Old. Oh, um, that's him. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen the ads for that. Yeah. So I'm hyped that I, I I'll do my Shyamalanathon for uh that for that movie um oh yeah. my god brad pr- please call it that <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that would just came out no you need brad if you have a notepad write that down please because that's i think uh, that's utterly precious uh, yeah, i'm gonna record <laughs> the, it now the shamalama shamalanathon <laughs> the cinema speak shamalanathon uh uh, well, while Brad is writing that down, and I hope he is, uh, oh, I am. I'll keep us, I'll keep this moving. Um, so, unlike Brad, I don't have a whole lot of horror movies on my shelf. Um, I defer to both Brad and Kyle when it comes to their mastery of the horror genre. Um, however, I do have a horror comedy here uh, that does have a standout sequence, at least in my mind, and that would be uh, Ron Underwood's Tremors. Which, uh, this was the one that I mentioned to you beforehand, uh, Brad, that you would slap your thigh and be like, God damn it. <laughs> Why Love not think tremors. of that? <laughs> Love Tremors. 
yeah we we both have a mutual love of tremors um however i don't think either of us has seen all of the tremors films uh, i left off in the in the african one uh, i think you did as well so there's at least one more tremor tremors that we haven't seen and it's the one in the, the arctic or something um mm-hmm. anyway the first one regardless of what you have to say about the tv series the failed tv series and uh, the innumerable uh, direct-to-video sequels. Uh, the first one is is pretty much like a, a 90s monster movie classic. Like, it, it's a wonderful film. It has so much to offer everybody. Um, and it's no wonder it became such a big thing after the fact, mostly from, like, video rentals and, like, screenings on cable. Because as far as I know, it did not do well in the theaters. Um, and Kevin Bacon was completely embarrassed by it <laughs> on his filmography for years. But now yeah. it's like something that's really special uh, to a lot of people and I, I think he's come around finally um but of course the standout sequence um i i don't think is this is just me having the sentiment uh would be you broke into the goddamn rec room <laughs> uh that would be the sequence wherein michael gross and reba mcintyre as the gummers um he's basically become the mascot for the franchise essentially um Basically, these two characters are like uh, survivalist gun nuts that um, find themselves in a situation where a a big old monster smashes into their bunker um, where they just happen to store all of their weapons. (laughs) It's this wonderful sequence that doesn't really match up with the the general vibe of the rest of the movie. Um, But it's, it's basically one of those things where it's like if you... It's like a really basic math equation. I've, I've used this example before, but it's like fa- it's like Fast Five or Fast and Furious Five, where it's like we have a Vin Diesel, we have a Rock, uh, that would be Dwayne the Rock Johnson, not not a Stone. <laughs> um, I, it it only makes sense that we slam these two monster truck human beings into each other. And the same goes for Tremors, where it's like, okay, we have two characters who we know to be survivalist gun nuts. Uh, We've seen their bunker earlier in the movie, and we also have these big giant worm things. Um, We got to have a moment where the big giant worm things crash into the guns, (laughs) and that's exactly what happens here. (laughs) Like I said, you broke into the wrong goddamn record. (laughs) And yeah, it's just this lovely like three-minute sequence of a, a lovingly married couple <laughs> unloading every weapon they have into the gaping maw of a hideous worm creature. Mm-hmm. And it's spectacular. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, thinking about it, like Tremors has a great cast of characters. Like, I think that's it part of the reason of its, for its success is that, you know, with, you know, fairly minimal screen time, they all kind of make uh, an impression. And that's partly due to the cast, I would say. Like, uh, you know, Michael Gross and Reba are awesome as those two characters. And uh, I think it'd be great. Like, I, th- I, th- I think she still has a music career, but her sitcom's over. Like, it'd be cool if she... Uh, like I don't th- do, do I can't remember. Do they ever explain why she's not around like, in any of the other they movies? They get divorced. They, they so she she could come back. So she could come back. It could oh, yeah. happen. No, you you could totally have a subplot where they they like reunite, but she has a new beau and he's like jealous or something. But then uh, over the course of like shenanigans, maybe the new guy gets eaten and she's mm-hmm. like, oh, Bert's not so bad. <laughs> and then they have a happy ending at the end at the expense of that random guy (laughs) but yeah you you totally could bring her back and it would make you know the handful of fans for the series that still follow it anyway uh very very happy but 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The characters were the difference maker. Uh, it's like the characters in the writing. Um, like it, it's a oddly smart monster movie. Um, it's very very simple, but that that's what makes it so special. It's basically, it's very similar to like a Jaws. Um, it works kind of similar to that formula, um, but an even smaller town um, and fewer moving parts, such that it, the simplicity of it is part of the charm. And every single person like victim or otherwise in the film has some sort of character to them that's immediately recognizable like fucking melvin <laughs> it's like you to look at that kid for two seconds you're like that guy's a piece of shit i hate him yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do something you guys gotta do something <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's 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 all those small details that are the difference maker and Actually, one of my favorite comedic beats in the whole movie is between uh, the the Gummers. Uh, so Bert, uh, Michael Gross, has an elephant gun, um, which is kind of the coup de gras, uh, like on on the on the uh, graboid um, that comes into his his gun bunker, and that's a wonderful moment unto itself when he blasts the thing to to high heaven. But um, later, when they're on the rocks and they're camping, <laughs> there's there's a bit where he can see the graboids like moving under the soil, and he just dumps the elephant gun straight into the dirt. <laughs> and you just hear Reba; she looks over her shoulder, she's like, "Bert, cut it out!" <laughs> he's like, "I thought, I think I scared him." <laughs> and it's like you just wanted an excuse to pull the trigger on your on your new toy. <laughs> like, shut up, you're wrong. <laughs> but yeah. no, it clearly. Brad and I both really love the first Tremors film, but while we're on the subject, um, do you have any sequels that you have any positive feelings for, or is it all kind of a murky mess of negatives? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, a little bit of that. It's been a while since I've seen any of the early ones. Uh, I actually do remember liking two a fair bit. My My only issue when I revisited it, which was probably like 10 years ago now, was that there's not a lot of kills. Like, it was only like two people die, which was kind of lame, but I actually do like what they do in that one, the idea of them evolving, because you know that's something they carry forward into the third one as well, but you're not expecting it really um, in that one, so it's kind of fun. Like There's a little bit of a mystery going on, like, what, is this a new creature? What's going on here? Um, and I like the idea of going from underground up onto land, essentially. And uh, So I like the second one. Um, aside from that, they're all kind of similar for me you know fairly watchable but not great yeah i would agree with you for the most part that second one is okay mm -hmm. um but yeah even as a kid that was one of the things that jumped out at me is like damn this body count's really low um and and actually like the like the one good kill we get on screen is fairly brutal um it, we don't get to see the whole thing but it's like when the uh when the little guy is chewing up the one fella's leg and it like drags him off but like when it's chewing on his leg there's some chunky salsa coming out there it's pretty oh, yeah. tasty mm -hmm. um, but yeah most of the violence is actually just on the graboids where like when we see how they transform the one like gets gutted it basically looks like it's been torn apart and that's pretty gruesome but you know that's not why we're paying like we want to see people go down too <laughs> but yeah um that was the one that introduced i think bert's uh catchphrase of i didn't know how could i have known i <laughs> 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 actually i actually kind of like that because it, it it's a it's a actual like logical evolution of the character where it's like he's a little bit of a bumbling fool in that one where he has some of the 
some of his luster taken away from him and he yeah. has his he has his anti-tank rifle that i think he shoots it through a graboid and it's this awesome part where it like decapitates it but then we see that the bullet went through like an oil drum and a brick wall and the engine block of the vehicle they're going to use to, to escape that's like Okay, that's pretty funny. He's like, yeah. I didn't know. How could I have known? <laughs> and of course, I think he's also responsible for like the the finale the finale of the movie, like isolating the graboids in a place full of food, which is exactly what they used to reproduce. But mm-hmm. um, third one sucks. I think the fourth one's the one in the old west. And uh, if memory serves, it's okay, um, if only for the novelty of it taking pa- place in the past. And also, Michael Gross gets to actually do some... He actually does some acting in that, because it's like uh, an ancestor of uh, of Bert, who is, his temperament is completely opposite. So he's he's kind of, like, shy and weak. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, beyond that, basically, like, if you're at all interested and, and you're new to the franchise, first one's the only one that's essential. If you're curious, check out the second one. Beyond that... Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I know um, Arrow just put out the first one on 4K, and I would actually love, I don't know if they would do it. I guess they've done a few. Yeah, maybe they would do it. Like uh, a full, like a really good coll- like box set, collector's edition set of all the films. That would be cool because it would give me, I would certainly, it's a reason to rewatch all those sequels, um, which I think would be fun because it's been so long since I've seen them. Um but I don't know if that's gonna. I don't know if that's in the works. Probably not. Yeah, I wouldn't expect so. I'm sure there's some sort of licensing tie up or hang up of some sort. But yeah, I mean, if if there was a box available, I'd check them all out again. Um, oh yeah. But anyway, that's enough about Tremors. Uh, Brad, uh, what you got next? Um, let me see. Let's go back to. Let's go to another action movie. Why not? Um, this one. Uh, it was the first one that jumped to mind when you gave me this. Uh, idea and uh you know it's from probably my favorite action franchise at least favorite action franchise going now and that is the mission impossible franchise and i'm highlighting ghost protocol and as you can see uh tom cruise climbing the burj khalifa is such a standout sequence for this movie and i would say it's probably my favorite set piece in the entire franchise it's so much fun suspenseful it i mean it looks amazing just the idea of you know actually shooting practical practically as much as you can and like the idea of tom cruise like you watch some of the behind the scenes videos of them shooting it and him run actually running along the tower it's like even when you see him with the like protective wires it's like somehow even more scary watching it like that um but yeah i I really like this one I, i like what brad bird brought to the franchise it's kind of you know it's kind of like the jj abrams aesthetic that he brought to three kind of is sticking around because i know he's still a producer but there's a lot more comedy in this one it's a lot more cartoony in a way and i think it works i think i think it's a lot of fun and the idea of some of the tech the 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 gloves that peel off and when one of them the battery dies which you know you can see coming from a mile away but it doesn't make it any less fun and exciting and um i even like the sort of like uh i can't remember exactly what it is but they they have a meeting after that sequence and they're like pretending to be people they're not and i think it's like somebody's in their ear telling them what to say like even that sequence is a lot of fun and i that whole burj khalifa 
sequence is so good that unfortunately the the film after that just drops off like it's not even it's like literally just turn the movie off at that point because it does not even come close to matching that which is unfortunate um i would still probably say this might be it's my favorite or second favorite of of the franchise but almost entirely based on that sequence in the middle of the film and it's that good yeah actually now you mention it the the events in the film that occur after the Burj Khalifa sequence are a little bit of a blur I know there's a sandstorm that's probably like a half an hour later honestly Mm -hmm. um and I remember like the final climactic battle happens in a, a vertical parking garage um where the man doing the fisticuffs doesn't appear to be like I didn't expect him to be as capable as he was. <laughs> so it's like, oh wow, like this this I guess he's more of a match for Ethan Hunt than I totally expected. But um yeah, I like that the there's like a thesis um for all the action scenes for that movie. Um I've said it before that Brad Bird, uh, you know, he was chiefly an animation director. Um, so he's another one of those guys, probably like Gore Verbinski, um, who leans very heavily on his storyboard team. Um, he likes to come in with a plan when it comes to structuring his action sequences and stuff. Um, but like the thesis through that entire movie is that none of the tech works. Um, one of the staples of the Mission Impossible franchise, uh, much like James Bond or something, is that they always have nifty gadgets and stuff, be it masks or uh, you know hacking equipment or things things along those lines like almost every time they lean on their technology to help them out it doesn't work in the movie and in the in the Burj Khalifa sequence like everything goes to shit i think mm-hmm. the mask machine breaks as it's engineering a mask for them that's right um, yeah which yeah. leads to further complications in the plan and and it's stuff like that that give it that like like really heightened like heist movie feel to it um, even more so than other entries in the franchise, which, you know, after the fact, like five and six turn more into like straightforward action movies for the most part. Um, but yeah, that sequence was incredible. Um, like, I think the the stillness of it is what I really like is that they really let it breathe. And like the soundtrack isn't going fucking ballistic. It's just kind of like they, they just shoot it as it is because you know just that image alone is incredible mm-hmm. like you don't need to dress it up it's like yeah that's really fucking high <laughs> it's like that's scary i don't i don't need the orchestra to tell me it's the time where i need to be scared for ethan hunt because i yeah. can tell just by looking at the screen um but yeah I, I i think it's funny how many times the mission impossible franchise comes up when we talk about it like we both really really like it but like it it also serves to remind me that's like it's been a minute since that sixth one came out. I know they were filming the seventh one, um, but I haven't heard anything in a while. And in fact, like Tom Cruise's whole career seems to be stalled because Top Gun 2, I think, was due out like during COVID. And I haven't heard hide nor hair of it uh, in quite a while, at least a year. Yeah, last I heard, I think it was on for like this fall winter season. Um, I don't know if it's been delayed since, but that was the last I'd heard. Um, yeah, and I know Mission Impossible, the big thing was that they were, it was kind of like the one big movie that they were filming during COVID, like at the height of early on. And so it was getting a lot of press because of that. And you have Tom Cruise is his amazing freak out, which, uh, you know, in, in all fairness, like he's probably going about it the wrong way, but you know, he is, he is making some good points in that. So that's what makes it so good. It's not just like a celebrity being a, an asshole for no reason. It's like, I see. I can see where he's coming from, which I think makes it a great public freakout. Um, 
but yeah, I'll be very excited when the new one comes out. I, I'm guessing maybe 2022. I'm guessing. I, I don't know. Um, but I've seen some behind the scenes uh, videos and stuff of some of the stunts they've done and looks pretty good. Looks like there's going to be some pretty good set pieces. Okay. Well, I, I continue to remain hyped for it um, because, you know, I'm confident in saying that like other than the second one, pretty much the entire franchise is good. Yeah. Um, second one is difficult to watch now because it's basically the year 2000 in bottle form. <laughs> And it's all the ugly parts of that year. <laughs> uh, Limp Biscuit. Hey, you better fucking believe it. <laughs> and I mean, John Woo even brought his doves. It's like, yeah. Mm. yeah but the the thing that makes the franchise special is is how how diverse each entry has been. Except for, of course, the Christopher McQuarrie ones. And you know, you could also argue that Christopher McQuarrie probably uh, does a little bit of bowing to Mr. Cruz um, when it comes to some of the production decisions uh Mm -hmm. it does seem to be the case like i feel like tom cruise probably has a hand in directing almost everything he does post like 2015 or something for sure um like jack reacher definitely seems like he he got behind the camera every once in a while where he's like make me look good yeah (laughs) it's like yeah yeah i can see it but um yeah it's a wonderful franchise and i do look forward to the the next entry whenever that decides to drop by the way um that that public freakout you mentioned did did you use audio from that on on the cinema speak podcast <laughs> yeah oh yeah i have a few drops from him on my soundboard um from that public freakout i could not do it i, I had to do it <laughs> i i know i enjoyed that a lot of it so uh, keep keep that as part of the soundboard for as long as you can <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> all right well um man i have now that I'm looking at my my stack here, I have a pretty diverse selection, but I'm gonna go for something um, fairly mainstream. This is from a, a blockbuster film uh, from a little earlier in history than than Mission Impossible Four, but not by much. Uh, and that would be uh, I have the Spider Man, the Sam Raimi Spider Man trilogy box set here. It's just a it's not a very handsome collection, but. It gets the job done, and it was dirt fucking cheap. <laughs> and I already bought a couple of these movies on DVD. So, you know, if I'm going to repurchase it, I guess I'm going to half-ass it. But um, I am specifically referring to uh, Spider-Man 2, um, because I do regard Spider-Man 2 as one of the one of the better superhero movies of its day. I mean, everything's getting super hard to determine now, because the market's been so flooded for so many years that... Uh, calling anything the best of anything it's like it's it's all diluted Uh, there's too much out there to measure it against Uh, so it becomes very difficult to do that but um, in its day spider-man 2 i felt was a remarkable superhero movie and in fact i've noticed that uh, number two entries uh, seem to be my favorites of a lot of these superhero franchises like uh, batman returns is maybe my very favorite superhero movie of all time. Uh, I'm typically more partial to Superman 2 over Superman 1. Uh, X-Men 2, uh, X-Men United, I prefer over the first one. And Spider-Man 2, I prefer over 1 or 3. So the standout sequence, or standout scene rather, uh, that I'm referencing here, I just like to call the train sequence. Uh, because in my mind, um, the first time I saw the sequence and forevermore, to me, I was like, this is superhero cinema. This this is exactly that encapsulated in like a three-minute action scene. 
uh, and you you get pretty much everything you could want. Um, part of the charm of it is that it doesn't date itself uh, because the the number of moving parts in the sequence are about as much as you can tolerate any more and it would just be obscene it would be it would be too much um, but as it stands it's like you get uh, dr octopus uh, alfred molina and toby mcguire spider-man uh, having fisticuffs on a moving l train through the streets of new york uh, you get like lovely cinematography showing the city itself amid all the fighting um, but then during the fight, Doc Ock starts throwing people off the train. <laughs> so Spider-Man has to like use his webbing and stuff to, to swing around and save the people and get them back in the train or just like tie them up and stuff. And then he has to also fight Doc Ock and get back to the train in between it all. And all these moving parts, like I said, are, are just enough for your brain to tolerate. And everything's framed just so that it, it never devolves into chaos. And even the length of the scene is kind of just right. Or it, like the main thing is that it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, and in addition to that, the music that plays over the sequence, which, uh, funny enough, for for years um, I was unable to find because I, I don't think it was on the official soundtrack uh, for the film, uh, because um, Danny Elfman and Sam Raimi apparently had some sort of dispute. Uh, I don't. I have no idea what about. Um, but apparently these two fellas didn't like each other, um, even though they inspired each other to do some pretty awesome work over over the course of these two two films. Because uh, Danny Elfman apparently had enough and he didn't come back for Spider-Man 3. Um, I forget who did. Christopher Young uh, did. He did supplemental pieces of music for Spider-Man 2 and he took over completely for Spider-Man 3. Um, so as it so happens, one of the tracks that he composed happened to be the music that played over the train sequence, which mm. is why it wasn't on the soundtrack, apparently. Mm. Uh, so I think I found like a bootleg at some point. But yeah, a combination of, of just the the cleverness of the choreography and, and like the true blue, like superhero, superhero-y nature of what's unfolding on the screen. Um, and then even the resolution after the fact with like Joey Diaz <laughs> standing up for a for a Spider-Man on the train. It's corny as hell, um, but it still kind of works. And and if you want to get totally to the end of it, uh, the sequence also gave us that lovely meme of a uh, Tobey Maguire's exertion face. Yeah, it's not a good look, man. Like like he turns into fucking Gollum when, yeah. whenever he's exerting himself. And there's that shot of him. I think it's when he's a uh, testing himself to see if he can get his powers back and he starts running like he breaks out into a sprint in slow motion he his nose just kind of <laughs> like dips into his lips and his face scrunches up that's the first time he does it but like this part where he stops the train spider-man stops a train by the way <laughs> we get this sustained shot of him making that face it's just like oh god this is the stuff nightmares are made of <laughs> Yeah, it's funny that you uh, mentioned Spider-Man 2. I almost grabbed that off the shelf specifically for that sequence because um, I do love the film, but it's been a little while since I've seen it, so that's why I didn't grab it. But it was one I was like, mm. I, I hovered over it for a second, but I didn't I didn't pull it off. Okay, well, I mean, it it is one of those movies that I think, like I said, there's so many superhero movies and just straight-up superhero content these days that... I think it's actually becoming more and more difficult for people to go back to these things where it's like there's a handful of classics early in the genre like 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 uh 
Tim Burton Batman or Richard Donner Superman and stuff, or maybe even the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man, although Disney sure as hell doesn't seem interested in keeping that alive. Although maybe maybe they'll bring Toby back. We'll see. But um, I think because the genre is so bloated these days, it it's not one that uh, there are very many good historians for these days. Um, so I, I could totally see you maybe not not being in a hurry to pull it back off the shelf. Yeah, I mean, it's I don't, I don't know if it's even really that. It's just because uh, I do like that. I, I won't say trilogy because I do think the third one is not great. But the first two films I quite like. And I think if you compare them to the superhero films that come out today, they clearly have a style like they feel like a Sam Raimi film and you know say what you will about the Marvel movies I think they've gotten a little better at letting directors put their own stamp on things like I think Thor Ragnarok definitely feels like a Taika Waititi film Um, but for a while there it felt like everything was kind of fitting in its in the Marvel mold and it felt like you know nothing there wasn't a lot of style to it and I would say the um Tom Holland Spider-Man movies are pretty good, but they are just kind of, you know, they feel like just Marvel movies. They're fun, but there's not uh, there's not a unique voice there. Whereas uh, I definitely think that, you know, like some of the corniness in it, I think it fits. It feels like a Sam Raimi movie. Um, and uh, I, I like them for that. Uh, and yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen them, but uh, maybe if they're doing this whole spider-verse thing maybe i'll i'll finally revisit them yeah i can't remember is sam raimi uh still on the hook to do dr strange or did he get booted i think he's still doing it i think he is that that will be interesting to see if it feels like a sam raimi movie or if it you know just feels like dr strange 2 um i think i'm i'm feeling like it's gonna be the the lat or the latter uh, I don't have a lot of faith that his uh, style will shine through more because what has he done lately? Like uh, that Oz movie, which was, you know, <laughs> it is what it is, I guess. But yeah, I mean, Sam Raimi, his career has had many peaks and valleys to it. But when he's on, he's truly special. Um, I, I mean, you, what you said about the the. Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies like I I love those very particular director flourishes those are part of what make those movies kind of special is the the raindrops keep falling on my head um, montage with Tobey Maguire being all dopey and that Mm -hmm. stupid fucking freeze frame (laughs) it's so stupid (laughs) but but I love it I'm so happy that's there and then yeah oh I just remembered that um yeah he definitely is doing Doctor Strange because I saw like somebody posted a photo of uh like bruce campbell's instagram or something he had a script for it so apparently Mm. bruce campbell has a line or two in the movie i saw that um hopefully he isn't playing some cgi behemoth of some sort hopefully we do get to see that glorious chin in a marvel movie (laughs) but um yeah i i really hope sam raimi gets to flex some of his particular muscles because he really is special um especially in regards to how he likes to lens his action stuff it's like his his zooms in particular <laughs> like where the way he likes to move his camera is something i is that is missed dearly um in cinema these days or at least in like blockbuster cinema um, yeah so fingers crossed for that 
I'm just I'm looking at his IMDb, and the last movie he directed was Oz the Great and Powerful, and that was 2013. So it's been a oh, while. Um, he's done some TV stuff, but no feature films. Maybe he and Gore need to hang out and make something together or something. <laughs> I'd be down for that. I'd be. I mean, like looking at Sam Raimi. I mean, I I liked Drag Me to Hell, and that was his film before Oz the Great and Powerful. So. You know, I guess his second to most recent film I enjoyed, so I, I, I won't count him out yet. Okay. Well, like I said, fingers crossed. Um, but that being said, Brad, um, ball is to you, sir. What you got? All right. Let's go with uh, let's go with this one. This one's a little different. Um, and I, I won't be able to get too far into specifics for this. I can't remember if you've said you've seen this yet or not. I know at one point it was on your list. This is a movie that I uh, watched and totally took me by surprise, as it is intended to do. That is One Cut of the Dead, which uh, I have the steelbook here. Finally got it. And uh, it's, you know, I'm not like a big steelbook guy, but it's a nice looking steelbook. Um, <laughs> have you seen this film yet? Uh, it's it's on the shelf over there. I okay. St- I, I'm, I... I'm pulling a Brad on this one. I still haven't cracked her open. I will have to be extremely vague here, but this movie has, uh, it's not really like one scene, but basically like 40 to 45 minutes in it, there's like kind of like a change, I guess, in setting in, you know, other things. And it's such a, it can, it changes. It makes the movie that switch over makes the movie. Um, and it's pretty incredible how, you know, you're kind of sitting and watching the first like 40, 45 minutes of the film. And you're like, this is the movie that everybody says is great. What, what, what am I, am I just not getting like, what is going on? And genuinely like not even enjoying it. Like I was like, this is bad. Like, what is this? But then when that switchover happens and kind of like, you know, the puzzle piece clicks into place, it's like, that was genius. So just the sheer audacity of, you know, essentially, I don't know how to say it without spoiling it, but basically like throwing out your first 40 minutes of your movie, like intentionally making it bad in a way to kind of like pull the rug out from under you is awesome. And uh, yeah, I, I love that sequence where it switches over. I think once you realize you're watching it and you realize what is going on, it like dawns on you and it's such a cool feeling because you're like, that is genius. That is amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I've only seen this the one time, but I, I, I'd like to revisit it for sure. I wish you had told me ahead of time, Brad, because <laughs> otherwise I would have watched it and uh, I wouldn't have stole your thunder there. But um, yeah, I unfortunately have yet to watch this. I have owned it for quite some time, hmm. but um being as I haven't watched it, I don't have a lot to say about the movie, but I will say this. Um, I did blind buy a, uh, I think a mini series that he, this same director uh, made. And it was largely on the strength of not only the glowing reviews this movie had gotten, but also the, the word of mouth that I got directly from Brad's choppers there. <laughs> but um, I'll just, uh, I'll just read you the description of it. Maybe it'll pique your interest. Cause like I said, this is an entire like mini series that I just hmm. wine bought um, via a, a Hong Kong website. Um, so it's called special actors and it's from 2019 and it's directed by uh, Ueda Shinichiro, uh, who's the same director as one cut of the dead and plot summary is as follows. 
Uh, Kazuto is a nervous, struggling actor who especially loves a superhero movie of his childhood. But he's unlikely to become a superhero himself, given his pesky habit of fainting under pressure. Uh, one day, Kazuto runs into his estranged brother, who recruits him into the Special Actors Agency. Uh, special Actors dispatches actors like Kazuto to orchestrate and act out elaborate scenarios for clients in the real world. In other words, con jobs. When he's cast to save a schoolgirl's family from a cult, Kazuto finally has the chance to become Rescue Man. <laughs> so it's it sounds like a very meta story where it's like he, yeah. he starts he starts out like acting out scenarios that probably eventually become real and it sounds like it's going to get bonkers and he's going to turn into like a a common writer or ultraman esque like rubber suited superhero. <laughs> um I surely hope like I surely hope that's the case, but I have yet to crack that open as well. Um but it is nestled on my shelf right next to the movie that preceded it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I could see, just based on that synopsis, I can picture it in my head and see some similarities between One Cut of the Dead, uh, specifically with some of the comedy. Like, I can see I can see where they would be made by the same guy. Like, it sounds like... A, it sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, just based on the word of mouth I've heard about One Cut of the Dead, it sounds like um, maybe studios are willing to, to put some resources behind this guy. I mean, he's... He's fairly early in his career, as far as I know, but that's how the film industry internationally works these days. So I'm not going to be surprised at all if I see him headlining like a Japanese blockbuster in the very near future or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, damn it, Brad. I wish you had told me ahead of time. I would have. I would have watched it so you could go. You could speak at length about how awesome the sequence. Yeah, was. that's that, that's my bad. That's my bad. I don't think I pulled oh. this one off the shelf until uh, last night. But you know, certainly. I would say the movie's a little inspiring as well because it's like such a good idea and it's like I'm seemingly probably very low budget and it's like, wow, all, you know, all it takes really is a good idea. Like if you've got an idea that's good enough, you get a little money behind it, you can make an amazing movie. And, I, you know, like this, uh, Blair Witch Project is another film I throw in there. I mean, just the idea of you do something that's clever and creative enough, like you don't need a huge you know studio backing you like you can make it yourself if you need to so i think it's you know a little inspiring in that way yeah you too can make bone sickness (laughs) 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 or i mean maybe a better example is uh tangerine which i think famously was shot on an iphone and i think Mm -hmm. was nominated for many awards or something that's a good one Um, yeah for sure it's supposed to be a very good movie and it was done with basically nothing so yeah Mm -hmm. if you have an idea resources lack of resources are not an excuse anymore yeah i mean that's it's a good thing in some ways it's also a bad thing because it's like well now you have no excuse like (laughs) it's like now you have no excuse either you just uh you're lazy or you're just not as talented as you think you are i guess i mean (laughs) yeah (laughs) you're only a loser because you allow yourself to be one (laughs) because you're lazy uh well hmm trying to think of where to go next uh because I have an entire stack here devoted to just people punching each other. that I, w- I was thinking I could just gloss over all of them. Um, but then I also have other things. So what do you want, Brad? Do you want punching? Uh, or do you want another standout scene in particular? Um, let's go with... Uh, let's go with just another standout scene. But I want to clarify. When I 
just a minute ago said you're not as talented as you think you are. I wasn't referring <laughs> specifically to you. I was just saying like, you know, in in general in terms of people and and, and me more me, I guess. I'm I'm more talking about me. Just wanted to clarify. <laughs> It's okay. I, I wouldn't be hurt either way, Brad, and I'm sure our listeners are thick-skinned enough to... Well, actually, maybe that's a teaching moment they need. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, that's staying in for sure. Okay. Uh, well, here. Hmm. I'm going to go with one that's going to probably piss off Kyle. Um, I have much more creative ones. Actually, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm going to go off book here. So this is a movie I've only seen once. Um, but I know I'd very much like to watch it again. Um, and I actually enjoyed it quite a bit more um, than I expected to, mostly because I didn't hear shit about it. Like, it was a big deal when it was coming out, and then nobody fucking talks about it anymore. Uh, so this is, it's its not like it's a secret or anything. It's, it's a very mainstream film. <laughs> so this is Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this film, like I said, it, when it was on its way, people were hyped for it. And then I really haven't heard it brought up in conversation uh, since. And I'm kind of surprised by that uh, because from an audio audiovisual standpoint and especially an editing standpoint, I think it's like kind of a technical masterpiece in some ways. Uh, the audio in particular is kind of some monumental shit. Um, I wish I had your sound system for this, Brad. Uh, <laughs> it's not that good. Like, it's not that good. <laughs> it's not that good. <laughs> okay. But I mean, when I think of like, sound systems this is a movie that i would put on to to christen like a new dolby atmos system or something um but the standout scene in particular um that i'm talking about here is i guess what i'd call like the convergence moment um wherein we have a film that's presented with like three different timelines essentially where we have sequences occurring over the course of i think like one week um one one day and one hour um, and then there's a, a moment in the film where all three of those timelines converge and all, all three of those primary elements uh, come together for just a single instance in the film. And it was one of those things that I got wise to what was happening fairly early in the film. And I, I was kind of like rubbing my hands together like, oh, are they going to stick the landing? And they, Christopher Nolan did it. Um, when it happens, like for me, who is really into film editing in particular i was really excited just for that like regardless of what happened to the characters i could care less <laughs> i mean the one guy doesn't even fucking talk <laughs> uh, but when when that happened in the edit when when all of those timelines came together very seamlessly um and the and the soundtrack in particular kind of like waved a flag and said hey we did it <laughs> like like i felt that and I was I was astounded uh, just by how they were able to pull that off, um, and it helped too that the rest of the film was gripping. Like I I was thoroughly engaged with this film. Uh, it's very light on dialogue. It's very much like a an eyes and ears kind of experience where it's just like take in the lovely images and sounds, and most of the dialogue that's there you can barely fucking understand because it's a Christopher Nolan movie and people are speaking through fucking masks um, <laughs> and or gunfire and explosions. I don't know what it is about him and <laughs> and uh, muffling his dialogue with ambient noise. Um, it, it's a director's quirk, but it's definitely consistent. Like, it pops yeah. up in too many of his films. Um, but yeah, uh, I enjoyed the rest of the movie, but that moment in particular is one that I know... Um, 
it'll be long enough between my viewings of it that maybe part of part of me will forget that feeling and then i'll i'm hoping to recapture it the next time i put it on mm-hmm. yeah i uh i like dunkirk a lot i only i think i've only seen it the one time in the theater um mm-hmm. but uh I, I i i agree it's weird that it has kind of seemingly not been forgotten but you know it definitely isn't one that seems like people hold in quite a high regard and maybe it's just because on the surface to some people oh it's just a war movie but obviously like you mentioned in the way that it's edited and constructed very unique and very interesting and that's i think what makes it a great film um and that's one yeah i i do i should revisit that because uh i i think it was it made my top 10 of that year i just i haven't sat down to watch it and it's fairly short like it's less than two like for a nolan movie it's less than two hours which is pretty pretty nice yeah i mean normally he goes over he goes to like 230 territory yeah i I actually didn't realize that i I guess i was too invested in the experience and um it made for a really good uh solo watch actually um mostly because it's almost like a contemplative movie in a lot of ways mostly because of the lack of dialogue um, and just the sheer amount of um, visual communication that's that's done through the film, where it's like you you do a lot of you do a lot of filling in the gaps and like un- unfurling the mystery with just your eyeballs and not so much your ears or your brain. Um, and it's a unique experience for a blockbuster film in that way. Um, but yeah, one thing I'll say about it, um, like you said, it's it's a war movie. Um, oftentimes those are big sellers um, internationally and whatnot, but. I think one part of it that made it probably made it less memorable or less appealing in particular um, is the fact that it's a war movie where almost nobody gets to shoot back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very unique in that way, where it, it's it's a, it's a rescue mission, like it's it the the Dunkirk evacuation is the is the event. Um, and on paper, I could totally see people just kind of like scoffing in that be, and being like. I have Call of Duty like on my Xbox at home. <laughs> Do you really think I want to see an evacuation? No, I want to see I want to see the you know the knife action and and people popping heads and stuff. Yeah. Um, but no, most of this movie is just people you know, eating dirt and praying, um, and it's still very engaging. Um, I was really surprised by how they're able to do that. And I think this is just me spitting bullshit, but I have a theory about Christopher Nolan. Um, he likes action, but he, I think he has a disdain for violence uh, because his movies always have action and always have violent, like violence in them, like people hitting each other, people shooting each other, but it's never explicit. Like it's mm-hmm. never gory. Um, oftentimes the, the, the gore element of it is obscured or entirely absent. Like he's one of those guys that doesn't rig squibs on people. Um, and it, it, I think it's fitting that he would the war movie that he chooses to do happens to be one about people just trying to escape gunfire rather than fire back for the most part. Yeah, um, I, although Ten, Tenet kind of throws a monkey wrench into all of that. <laughs> although bit, yeah. actually, actually the the cinematography in Tenet, I I took note of this. There's a lot of people shooting, but you virtually never get to see who they're shooting at. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get like a, a cause and effect in the edit. It's just like you see people running in a general direction and shooting, and then you never get to see the the other end of it. Um, so I, I, you could spin that as being consistent with what I just said. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the one thing certainly with the last decade or so of his films, clearly he's got 
some sort of fascination with time and playing with time. I mean, between Dunkirk uh, and like the time differences he said there, uh, Tenet is time travel in a unique way. Interstellar deals with time, the science of time. So yeah, that's another thing that he has been very intrigued. Uh, Inception, even just the different layers. I mean, it's it's yeah. kind of interesting when you look at it that that is a, a a theme in not all of his movies, but a good majority of them. Yeah, directors matter. <laughs> like, like the the person in charge of the product does matter. I mean, regardless of what you have to say about auteur theory and stuff, you know, it 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 does matter who whose name is stamped on the thing at the end of the day. And I actually really get a kick out of noticing those those quirks, like like we said about Sam Raimi. Like when I can recognize that yes, Sam Raimi's fingerprints are on this. It's it's a good feeling. Um, it, it keeps me coming back to the works of those people. And in Christopher Nolan's case, I kind of like knowing what to expect. It it, uh, it builds anticipation on my part rather than discourages it. Um, but anyway, that was Dunkirk. Um, so, Brad, uh, what you got next? Oh, well, you know, speaking of uh, auteur theory, let's go with this one. Um, it's a movie I just watched. Uh, it might have been several months ago now, but fairly recently. Uh, it was a first-time watch. It is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, which I'd heard about uh, a lot before I'd seen it. And I gotta say, I really enjoyed Rope. Now, this is the one where it's probably best known for its long takes. Um, and I know some people say it's like the whole movie is presented as one shot, and it's not. There's clearly some obvious, like like, you know, obviously meant to be a cut kind of cuts um but it does play in that zone where it's you know hiding some of its cuts for a while and long extended takes and that's you know it's cool especially for back then it's very impressive i mean nowadays it's like it feels like every goddamn netflix show is trying to pull off that same shit and it's not quite the same but um i want to highlight a sequence where Basically, uh, the plot of this is that our two main characters murder a guy and they shove him in a, I don't even know what you'd call it, like some weird bit of furniture from the 40s, like a chest, and they they invite a bunch of friends over for dinner. And the whole thing is they are so like psychotic and full of themselves, they think they did the perfect crime and they can get away with murder. They did it so well that they can invite people over have them eat off of the chest, eat dinner off the chest where this guy, his body is inside, and they think they did the perfect crime so they can get away with it. So there's a, a moment where, you know, it's a long extended take where the, the camera holds on the chest and we hear kind of like all the, the dinner party, we hear them talking just off camera, just off screen, and we watch the housekeeper walk from the chest to the kitchen back and forth as she is slowly clearing off the chest and at first you're like oh she's she's cleaning off the chest what's going on here and then she grabs some stuff that is clearly meant to go get put in the chest and she's walking it over there and then she sets it by the chest and then she goes to grab some more and it's just this long sequence of like knowing that she's about to open the chest she's gonna open the chest and it's just like it seems like you're hearing them talk off camera. It seems like nobody's noticing it, and it's so suspenseful. It's so good. And, uh, you know, Hitchcock, he's obviously does great set pieces in so many of his films. Um, and this was a set piece that I, you know, 
I'd heard of the film, but I'd never heard people like highlighting that specific set piece. And uh, I certainly thought that was the highlight of the movie for me. I thought it was very suspenseful and well done. That's awesome, man. <laughs> like you, you brought up you brought up several things that are worth talking about. Um, set piece in particular is a is a phrase that that that's like my favorite stuff in cinema. That's why we're having the conversation we're having is because it, I I really appreciate that in films. I feel like it's it's slowly being phased out, mostly because like ensemble casts rather than movie stars seem to be the the way you put asses in seats these days. Uh, so you have a little bit of ADHD going on in the editing room, um, mostly enforced probably by the producers, where it's like, no, he he, Dave Bautista needs more screen time. <laughs> Elizabeth Olsen <laughs> needs more screen time. <laughs> Robert mm-hmm. Downey Jr. is still kind of on contract, so we need to put his CGI mask on someone else and <laughs> pretend he's still alive or whatever. Um, but yeah, set piece, I love, I love when a movie just blocks off a chunk of time and just says we're just gonna live in this scene regardless of what it is we're just we're not gonna stray away from it we're just gonna let it breathe and do its thing and hitchcock master of suspense i can kind of play that scene out in my head and i'm, I'm kind of like on the edge of my seat just thinking about it, it sounds absolutely captivating <laughs> yeah and it's yeah. interesting because like the main characters in the film i mean you could argue that the main character is uh jimmy, jimmy stewart um but he doesn't come into the film until like at least a half hour in. So in a way, our main characters are the two murderers. And it's like, you know, you don't, it's the one, it's the weird thing where it's like, you don't want them to get away with it, but also like you're scared that she's going to find the body. It's, it's a very weird thing where it's like, you don't want them to get caught, but you kind of do. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's well done. It's like a very twisted episode of Frasier. <laughs> an ep- a little bit. Uh, a- yeah open door farce as they call it (laughs) (laughs) yeah ropes long been on my list of films to check out my i think my dad when i was a little kid told me like you should check it out it's good Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i've I've seen a handful of hitchcocks but i haven't done a deep dive into his filmography i know he was a lot more prolific than than some people would expect like he has a lot more films than oh yeah just like the handful of classics that were on cable all the time uh, so he's very, very, very high on my list of people I'd like to do a deep dive on. Um, and I know, like, De Palma for a minute there was kind of, like, fingered to be the, the heir apparent. But then uh, somebody put the kibosh on his career because that, that man just fell right the fuck off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like a lot of I – could, I probably could have picked some De Palma. I didn't pick any out, but I could have picked some De Palma movies for some set pieces. He He's done a pretty great job at that as well. I mean, he learned from the best, <laughs> or at least took inspiration from the best anyway. But um, yet the other buzzword that you mentioned there was suspense. And that's something that I'm looking at the movies I have here in front of me on my desk, and um, I'm noticing a distinct lack of suspense. I have exactly one that I I was going to bring up, but I might bring it up just at like, the wrap-up phase of this. Um, but um, I actually almost pulled out a De Palma. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it, but um, The Untouchables... Mm. Uh, the mm-hmm. battleship Potemkin, the stairs sequence, um, is, is yep. of course you know a classic, suspenseful action sequence done in awkward slow motion. Um, that's that's you know since become kind of a classic in modern Hollywood. It's not a great movie if you ask me, um, but it has a couple of cool moments, mostly involving Robert De Niro and a baseball bat, um, <laughs> and those fucking steps. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah, I didn't pull that one out. But um, if you had to recommend like a Hitchcock movie that I have to watch right fucking now, what do you think it would be? Uh, what have you seen already? I guess I'll start with that. I've seen The Boyds. Uh, <laughs> um, I've seen uh, Strangers on a Train. Uh, I've seen Psycho. Uh, I think that's all I've seen. <laughs> I, I would say probably Rear Window or North by Northwest. Those two. Okay. I know the. I mean, it's kind of like uh, not not a cool answer. Like I know those are two of his like big ones, but uh, I mean they're big ones, well known classics for a reason. Like yeah, those are two of my favorites of his. I'd say Psycho. Though that and Psycho, those three are next level good. Yeah, Rear Window. Um is so steeped in in hollywood lore and has been parodied so many times that i feel like some of the wind would be taken out of those particular sales for me anyway just because i i kind of know some of the broad strokes of it just i've I've seen the simpsons when when flanders drops the vase (laughs) and bart's you know trapped in his room for the summer (laughs) but um vertigo is one that i've heard talked up a lot um in particular for its cinematography but uh yeah, maybe I'll check out North by Northwest. Yeah, actually, I would really recommend that to you because it is uh, definitely, you can see how it influenced the Bond franchise. Like, a lot of influence there. Yeah, Brad, when when do we get to talk about Bond? I'm, I'm down whenever. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, obviously, you and I don't need an excuse to talk about Bond. We could certainly dedicate an entire episode to that. Hint, hint, might happen someday. But, <laughs> but I mean, like, no time to die. What the fuck is going on with that? I think it's November now. Goddamn! Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I'm still in the middle of my Bondathon that started in early 2020 and was paused during covid yeah yeah so. you and every other fucking podcaster i listened to yeah <laughs> i'm so glad i didn't get started on that i might just restart i honestly think i might just restart <laughs> <laughs> i mean at this point you might have to jesus uh yeah well uh, well um being as uh you mentioned an older film there in the form of rope uh, i suppose my next pick I'm trying my best to follow suit here, Brad. Um, like I said, I have a plethora of uh, scenes involving punching, but I'm I'm trying to step out of the box just a little bit because I'm I'm sure somebody out there is tired of hearing me talk about this shit. Uh, so I'm trying to talk about some other stuff, and this would actually be a, a movie that we did an episode on for Catching Up on Cinema quite some time ago. Uh, this would be uh, Richard Fleischer's uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, from 1954 uh, with James Mason and Kirk Douglas. Uh, this was the Oscar winner that year for best special effects, as far as I recall. Same year that Godzilla came out in Japan, by the way. Um, and this was a movie that uh, I I adored when I was a child. Um, we had a VHS tape of it. Um, I loved everything about it. Um, I've, I've always had a thing about the ocean and boats and submarines and all that shit. Um, but the standout scene in this movie, of course, for a little boy anyway, um, was the giant squid. Um, every fucking time I put this movie on, it was basically just like me shuffling around, maybe like eating 
peanut butter crackers or something waiting for the fucking squid to show <laughs> up <laughs> because the rest of the movie is really good I, I i do enjoy it and in fact as an adult i think i appreciate it a lot more than i did when i was a kid but you know it was a vhs tape fast forwarding and rewinding there was no chapter select kids <laughs> so basically if you committed to watching a movie you were watching the goddamn movie um so i would just put it on and go like play with my action figures or whatever and then i would just wait for the squid to show up and it's a wonderful sequence i mean it's it's done with a giant puppet on strings in a in like a flooded set which is supposed to be the the top of the the nautilus which they bring the giant squid to the surface and the it's a 1954 film so the the orchestra is going fucking crazy <laughs> and uh, it's you know a whole bunch of sailors with axes and harpoons trying to take out this giant squid that will will not unlatch from the nautilus submarine and like captain nemo gets wrapped up in one of its tentacles and we get to see that it has this big old honking beak that it's trying to drag him into it's like snapping at him and as a kid you're like oh shit james mason's about to eat shit <laughs> but then kirk douglas shows up and he chucks a couple of harpoons directly between its eyes and it it of course dies it, it un- unlatches from the submarine and he saves captain nemo and captain nemo's like what's your deal <laughs> like you hate me and he's like yeah well i need to get home somehow you old bastard but yeah if you haven't seen this movie um i i don't know if it's on disney plus i sure hope it is because it is a disney film yeah and it certainly uh, it deserves a spot there and it, you know actually this is a movie that they should if not, if they aren't doing it already maybe try to remake it um i probably wouldn't like it as much but if you're gonna remake something it may as well be something that's genuinely dated and has legacy as being a winner of the best the best special effects of its year maybe try to take that title again using the same film property i think that would be a fun you know thesis for for pitching this project where it's like hey maybe we want we want to take another stab at that submarine movie maybe put the rock in there as captain nemo <laughs> it's funny because you you mentioned a remake and the first mind person that came to my mind was the rock so we're i mean on the same page there yeah. <laughs> any any movie these days just like it it always makes sense to put the rock in there yeah <laughs> like if you're trying to sell the damn thing just put the rock in it or yeah. actually, John Cena seems to be gaining traction as an actor these days. What they need to do is do exactly what they did for, I think, two different WrestleManias and put them in the same movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it almost would have happened with the new Fast and Furious, but I don't think The Rock is in that one. No, he and Vin Diesel have beef, like legit beef, so they, yeah. they don't share the set. In fact, I seem to remember that being obvious in the edit for uh, Fast 8. Where I, I seem to recall that where like if you if you pay attention you can notice that it's like huh I don't think they were ever in the same room together <laughs> yeah it's, it's unfortunate um but yeah I kind of agree with you I think uh, a remake of this would be pretty good because it is a property that name I think is you know something that even people that have never seen the movie never read the book like it's a known named property with a really cool title um and actually, I read this book, I believe it was my junior year of high school. It was like my, um, I was in like the AP lit class and we had to pick a book to do like a thesis on. And this was one of the ones on the list of approved books. And I was like, that actually, you know, seems like it would be a fun, exciting read. Um, don't remember much from it, but it was a 
I think I liked it from what I remember. I never saw the movie for some reason though, so I I would like to see this. Well, uh, if if you or somebody you know has Disney Plus and it's on there, maybe check it out because I I have always really really loved this movie. Um, I mean it it has faded just a little bit like when we did a review on it like I, I could tell kyle wasn't as enamored with it as i was but that was his first time seeing it whereas me i was raised on it so may, maybe i'm maybe i'm putting you down a, a murky path here but but yeah i would highly recommend it and uh seeing as I, I seem to have a question like this for every movie we've brought up what the fuck is the deal with jungle cruise <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that it might still be on for the summer. I could be wrong. I that's one I haven't been paying too much attention to because I who the fuck has in it. <laughs> I don't but, give a shit. I'm just curious because they started marketing that thing years ago. Yeah, I'm so you know it's funny like when all the movies were first getting delayed. I felt like I kind of had them all like in my mind when they were coming out. I kind of knew. Now I I really don't. I've I've given up trying to keep up with them. I think it's on for the summer. I think maybe late summer. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I've seen trailers resurface for for Black Widow. I have not seen trailers for Jungle Cruise, so it's that still is true on the back burner somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I know. I know they Black Widow is doing the uh, in theaters and on Disney Plus thing. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on. With Jungle Cruise. Like I said, no, nobody actually cares. <laughs> maybe <laughs> Disney just hopes we forget about it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> like maybe, maybe that's just meant to be buried in the salt mines somewhere. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, well, anyway, that's about enough out of me for 20,000 leagues under the sea. Um, what else you got, Brad? All right. Um, I'm going to mention one where, don't ask me any questions about it because I don't remember anything else from the movie, but I do remember one scene, and uh, it's a very famous scene, I think, even if you've never seen the movie. It is from The Exorcist 3, um, which I have The Exorcist uh, anthology here. I've got uh, all uh, all five of them. Uh, it is just the, the famous jump scare, which I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, but the... Uh, the cloaked uh, shears, uh, the creepy person that walks out, which uh, I, you know, I had seen it featured in TV programs, YouTube videos of scariest movie moments. Um, so I knew it was coming when I first saw the film. But I do have to say it, it is very effective. It, it is a very good jump scare. And I would have loved to have watched it without knowing it was coming i think it would have been life-changing i think it would have been really really good um but yeah it's it's a great sequence because of how it takes its time and uh you kind of know that something is coming but from what i remember you don't exactly know what and you certainly don't know exactly when and uh it's it's good it's uh, i i actually liked that film um from what i remember it i liked the film quite a bit I don't really remember much from it, though. I remember uh, Brad Dourif, uh, I think that's his name, the guy who plays Chucky and voices yeah. Chucky. He's in it, and he's in, like, a jail cell or something, and he's possessed or something. I don't know. But the, the main thing is that jump scare, which is, you know, rightly considered one of the best ever. 
Yeah, um, that that's one of those scenes that because I know about it, that's actually largely what's kept me from watching the movie. Um, I, I know quite a bit about the film because I, I watched a, a lengthy review of it on Red Letter Media. Uh, they do fantastic work, but they did end up spoiling pretty much the entire movie for me, which is fine. I, I'm one of those people who really isn't too bothered by spoilers. However, in this case, it's like one of those things where it's like, well... <laughs> and now now I actually have lost a little bit of enthusiasm for it but um if you dwell in horror circles it's pretty much impossible to to avoid being spoiled for this sequence but um yeah as far as I understand the production history for the movie was kind of odd uh in that there was an original ending that was very flat um that was the director's intended version um but then the studio stepped in and made everything more bombastic they did the the blue laser beam up to the heavens ending sequence for every uh, superhero movie ever <laughs> basically they were like no no we, we got to have some pizzazz here there has to be some explosions or something mm-hmm. um, so like all the the heavy special effects work that come into play in that final act apparently that was studio mandated rather than uh, director's intent which is kind of interesting because it sounds like most people seem to agree that that's better conclusion to the film because i've seen the original ending uh and it it without even seeing the rest of the movie i can tell you right now that's not a satisfying ending yeah maybe it fits maybe it's more consistent with the thesis of the film but i don't think anybody could potentially walk out of that feeling satisfied based on what i saw yeah well i know um i think shout factory put out a collector's edition disc of it and i think it has the two different cuts on it i'm Mm. guessing um which I don't have that, so I, I can't speak on that. But yeah, I certainly think. Um, although I don't think I saw the I don't think I saw the the last Exorcist film when they which even th- those last two that's even more interesting. Do you know the the story behind that? Uh, no, fill me in. It's just basically like uh, the same movie, just two different cuts, kind of thing. Like a uh, you know two different movies, like two different movies. I, I don't know exactly what the. Um, like the behind the scenes info is of it but yeah it's basically the same movie just two different cuts by two different directors uh, i think one of them i it was like they they completed the film and the studio was not happy with it so they brought in uh, another director to uh shoot some new stuff and rework it and then they ended up releasing both versions in theaters like within a year or two of each other um one of them was i want to say was it Paul Schrader directed one of them? I could be wrong. Mm. It was like a, a notable director. I can't remember if he was the guy they brought in or the original. Yeah, um, that, that's more your territory than mine. I, I actually don't know. Yeah, so Rennie Harlan oh, directed... Oh, fuck. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Um, oh, goddamn. <laughs> I'm guess- I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I could be... I'm guessing... I feel like Rennie Harlan would be, unfortunately, the guy that would say, hey... We- just come on in. We need your help. This movie isn't working. Yeah. And then Paul yeah. Schrader directed the other version where I feel like I, I haven't seen. Unfortunately, I watched the Rennie Harlan version first because it came out theatrically first. And I was just like, I don't want to watch another version of this. So I didn't watch the Paul Schrader version, unfortunately, um, at the time. So I, I, I need to do that for sure because I do like Paul Schrader. Um, but yeah, in, in, interesting how that played out and i don't know all the specifics but that's like the basics of it which i'm probably getting it way wrong but that's the you know general shape of what happened 
Well, I mean, you know me well enough to know, Brad, that I'm always fascinated with the idea of alternate cuts. Like Mm -hmm. like I said, editing is one of my favorite things about filmmaking. I I think it's basically what filmmaking is in some ways. (laughs) Um, And the idea, that's why things like the Snyder Cut were fascinating to me rather than, you know, eye rolling. (laughs) Because I'm interested in the idea of like, yeah, if you change the edit for something, you get, you basically get a different movie. Um, so I, man, damn, might have to check that out, especially when you mentioned Rennie Harlan. Cause I was like, like, are you sure? <laughs> like Rennie, <laughs> I know what teenage boys like, uh, Harlan, <laughs> uh, Rennie Harlan, who seems to just work in China exclusively these days. Yeah. Uh, he's been making blockbusters over there for a while now, since I think like skip trace, uh, he's still working. Um, but I, generally you you get a certain flavor from him so i'm curious what the difference between his exorcist and paul schrader's would be i imagine it would be very different here here's what just a quick wikipedia says so the rennie harlan version is called exorcist the beginning and it says exorcist the beginning was retooled from paul schrader's already completed dominion prequel to the exorcist which morgan creek productions executives feared would be unsuccessful so yeah, they he complete Schrader completed the film. They thought it was not going to be good, not going to work, and so they brought in Rennie Harlan to uh, do another cut of it. And uh, it's just interesting that they both got released like very soon, like after one another. And I think the Schrader version was a fairly limited run, um, so it wasn't like a big movie. But uh, I guess they were like, hey, let's try and make a little bit of money off of this thing. I don't know. I might have to check that out. Um, and yeah, that does sound right. Rennie Harlan would be the guy that you bring in to retool something. He would. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be the other way around. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to say, Paul Schrader, we need you to come in and make something just easily digestible just for the mass audience. Just come in and just, you know, just we're, you're going to be a jobber today. Like, yeah, you, would, yeah. you wouldn't say that to Paul Schrader. <laughs> yeah, Paul Schrader, uh, we, we need you to make sure that your, uh, your uh, exorcist film uh, appeals more to teenage boys. <laughs> needs more boobs needs more freddy krueger uh needs more intelligent sharks <laughs> needs more pirates and uh your ex-wife as well <laughs> she should be in the film <laughs> click yeah, yeah. Like, oh shit i should have called Rennie harlan <laughs> uh, yeah. but um that's the one with the hyenas isn't it like that's literally the only thing i think i know about that film I think so. I, I yeah. I, I, think, I, think I seem so. to remember a sequence in like in a later Exorcist film involving hyenas. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I'm right. so vague. I'm so vague, but that's all I got. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I I don't remember much from it, but uh, I I do remember not liking the Rennie Harlan version. <laughs> well, sounds about right. <laughs> but uh, well, how you feeling, Brad? Uh, you want to do another round, or you just want to wrap things up here? uh it's your call i could go either way okay well uh how about we do one more round and then we can uh we can have a wrap up where we can share anything that that feel like we need to shed some light on them just just for old time's sake uh so my next one here um and like i said i'm trying my best to not talk about kung fu (laughs) this is very difficult brad for me anyway uh, so I'm going to bring up a movie that has come up in conversation previously between you and I, I believe. 
Uh, that would be Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch on DVD in the shittiest cardboard case you can imagine. Oh, I hated uh, those. God, I hate these cardboard fucking <laughs> clamshell <laughs> cases. I have that in, like, Lethal Weapon 4, and I think that's about it for those mm-hmm. kinds of cases. But they're hideous, they're flimsy, uh, and they don't like moisture, I'll tell you that much, Fred, <laughs> speaking from experience. Um, I'm not that much of a consumer of uh, Western films. Uh, that would be like cowboys kind of movies. Um, I I do know that it's like one of those beloved genres of a bygone era that uh, the DNA of the Western, like the, the tropes associated with the Western, find their way into many, many other non-related, highly respected films, uh, such that like a lot of film historians would say, like, you really aren't studying the history of American film if you aren't studying Westerns, because they really do comprise a huge chunk of american film history so i guess i'm a shitty student in that way (laughs) but um this movie has often been like thought of as like an example of like quote the last western um because like everything feels a little off kilter where it takes place in like the 1900s and instead of six shooters like revolvers and stuff where they're doing the slamming the hammer back and doing like shooting from the hip kind of stuff like they have colt 1911s they have like automatic like self-loading handguns Hmm. um and everything just feels a little out of place and even the the relative age range of all the principal actors they're a little up there in years like william holden and uh what's his face uh ernest borgnine this movie has ernest borgnine he's he is a treasure I miss him. <laughs> that guy is wonderful. Just that that gap in his teeth and that big fucking moon face. Like I, he makes you smile just whenever you see him. He always seems oddly enthusiastic, regardless of what situation he's in, and that translates especially well in this film. But uh, the standout scene um, is one that, like, even if you haven't seen the film, you may have heard it talked about. It's the, it's the finale, um, and I want to say John Woo may have been a big fan of this movie um it's it's this it's of course a big gun battle it's a it's a western movie those happen sometimes but it's a sam peckinpah gun battle in i think the late 60s so uh there's a there's bloodletting a bloodletting a plenty um shockingly so for its day um but the what really makes it work though is the build-up to it um where we have a situation where our our lead characters who are kind of morally gray for the most part they're not great people but they do have like a they have like the old cowboy code in them and they've been wronged in a certain way and you know they they're seeking justice in in their cowboy way and we get this very long drawn out sequence of them walking through this dusty old town and they just it's kind of like a getting the band together sequence (laughs) It's, it's it's like the end of buckaroo bonsai where they're all like walking together but they do that thing where they there's no words exchanged. They just kind of look at each other, and it's like, well, yep. <laughs> Let's. It's like it's actually kind of like the end of Lethal Weapon Four, where where Mel Gibson is asking Danny Glover like, how do you do that trick with my gun? Like, how do you how do you disassemble my handgun like that? Just like just like that. And he's like, well. Let's go ask him. <laughs> it's very much that where it's it's just a whole bunch of old cowboys looking at each other and being like. You fixing to get in a gunfight? Like, yep, I guess so. <laughs> but except they don't say anything; they just look at each other. But um, also, like right as soon as the fighting starts, there's this moment where there's like a pause in the action, and it's this awesome moment where like 
something really nasty happens. I'm not going to spoil it because I do think you should see this movie, Brad. Yeah. Um, it's really great. Um, and, and like I said, I'm not that big of a Western guy, but I really like this movie. Um, really, like something bad happens and there's a lull. Like there's just like this beat where every there's like a chance where the you don't things don't have to get worse <laughs> but it's like fuck it let's make it as bad as it can get <laughs> and uh this is where having a guy like ernest borgnine like being able to put your camera on him in the edit is beautiful because like i said it's this really tense moment and he just has this big shit-eating grin on his face <laughs> it's like why is he so fucking happy like everybody else is terrified <laughs> and it's like that's why we hired him <laughs> so we can have that weird cutaway um but yeah the ensuing gun battle is terrific um it's it's it covers the entire emotional spectrum um it's a spectacle um that's far beyond that of a lot of other genre films um especially for its day lots of shotguns lots of machine guns lots just lots of guns <laughs> but, yeah i mean um, you're, you're selling me on that ending that sounds real good yeah, and the rest of the movie ain't bad, man. <laughs> like it's it's a good movie, but yeah, the the final sequence of it, like it it really sticks with you. Uh, it's like it's like as as somebody who has interest in filmmaking, it's like it's almost like aspirational. Where it's like, damn, I want to I want to put this in my movie. <laughs> like this is cinema. <laughs> uh, now, but yeah, I, I, I don't want to spoil it for you though. I gotta ask the the DVD that you have. Um, yeah. Is it the because the I'm looking at the Blu-ray and the Blu-ray says the original director's cut. Um, is that anything on the DVD or? Um, yes, original director's cut. Okay, hmm. so that must be the only version widely available today. I'm guessing then. More than like like I said, this movie it's a Sam Peckinpah movie. Um, so when people get shot there's squibs <laughs> in, yeah. in, in an era in an era where squibs were not as widespread as as they would become uh so i wouldn't be surprised if it was edited for content at some point like between its theatrical release and like maybe reissuings or something but yeah this is the original director's cut um and yeah i was right 1969 damn cool yeah yeah that sounds good i've got there's a lot of westerns that i need to see that's Me one too. yeah too. that's one blind spot i have for sure yeah i'd like to correct that though because um there's a shocking number of non-western films that people who are more learned than myself um in regards to film history um oftentimes will say yeah we've seen this before uh, just not in movies that you've seen (laughs) (laughs) so uh, in terms of like filling in some of those gaps that would be one that's very high on my list of things i'd like to get to sooner rather than later Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, when you watch the ones that are hailed as classics, at least for me, I've never watched a quote unquote great Western and walked away being like, eh, it was a little overrated. Like, usually they are very good. Yeah, a lot of times they're really good. Although, personally, I, I think I would probably I'd like to check out like John Ford stuff. Um, certainly, I'd like to check out some of Peck and Paws stuff, more of it anyway. Um, and I, I really want to check out more spaghetti westerns in particular, like Sergio Leone stuff. I've seen a few of them, but I ha- there's a couple I haven't seen that I, yeah. uh, sound really, really awesome. Like, I think High Plains Drifter is one that mm. is unusual, but it's really, really well regarded. Yeah, yeah. I definitely need to see uh, see some of those as well. I think I've got... Um, 
like I know I have the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I don't have the 4K remastered Blu-ray from Kino. I think I have just the standard disc. Um, and then I think I have both of the other two in that trilogy, whatever you fit for a few dollars more and yeah, fistful, fistful of dollars. dollars. Is that the name yeah. of them? I, I I've seen the first one and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Haven't watched the other one, so even in my own collection, I have some that I just haven't gotten around to yet. Well, it's an intimidating genre. Uh, there, there are way too many westerns. Yeah, <laughs> like really, it's it's kind of gross how many there are. Um, not necessarily good ones, but just if you're counting all of them, there's a lot of them. But oh yeah. Anyway, th- yeah. that's enough about the wild bunch and westerns and stuff. Uh, ball is to you, Brad. What you got? All right. Uh, this one. Um, I don't know. This one, sure, I'll highlight this one. Why not? Just to, just to end it a little differently, I guess. I'm going to end on a documentary, which is probably up there as one of my favorite docs. It is uh, in the Criterion Collection. It is Gimme Shelter, the uh, Rolling Stones uh, concert documentary. Um, it's, it takes place in 1969, the Rolling Stones. Um, it follows them on their tour, which ends at the Altamont Speedway. And it's this big concert featuring, um, there's some other notable acts there too. I can't remember who else performs in the film, but it is in a lot of ways, a concert documentary. But the thing that kind of makes this film very different is that there was an unfortunate tragedy at the concert where I guess they hired members of the hell's angels to act as security. And there was a, uh, kerfluffle. That's really putting it mildly. Um, there was a kerfluffle between the hell's angels and some of the concert goers. And one man ended up stabbed to death and he died. And I guess a couple, like two other people died at the concert, but it was more just like, like nat- not natural causes, but like maybe like they overdosed or whatever. O- only one guy was murdered um, is what I'm saying. But several people died at the concert. And uh, yeah, the and the crazy thing is that it happens essentially right in front of the stage and it's all captured on camera, which is pretty crazy to watch. So that's the sequence that I'm highlighting because really that sequence changes the movie in a lot of ways. And it's the kind of thing where the directors here, there's three directors and you can get the sense that they were, you know, making a documentary about the Rolling Stones on their tour. And, you know, it was going to be a cool documentary. I love the Rolling Stones. You know, it was, there's some just awesome concert footage and real cool stuff in here, but it probably wasn't going to be much of anything. And it might not be quite so remembered as it is today, but when that sequence happens in front of the stage and it's all captured on film, uh, it certainly changes the entire film and in some ways everything that came before it. And I guess a lot of people have pointed to that moment as like the anti Woodstock where Woodstock was a concert and, you know, all about peace and love and, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas this con- concert uh, was not as fun where people died and they kind of pointed to it as like that was the end of the free love era. So the idea that if that's the sequence that that's it's the moment where people say, you know, that that movement died and the fact that it's captured on film in this concert documentary, it's pretty uh, intense stuff. And uh, the final moment in the film is uh, we watch Mick Jagger, who didn't really know. He, he knew that there was uh, like fights going on in, in front of the stage during the concert. 
and he's got this great moment where he likes they stop performing and he's like why are we all fighting why are we all fighting <laughs> um but he he doesn't know that somebody dies right in front of him and they play back that footage uh to him and you get to watch him see that footage and kind of like realize that it happened right in front of him uh and it's a pretty powerful moment to end the movie on so yeah real good documentary really uh really interesting uh if, if you're a fan of documentaries and the idea of changing what you went out to do like going in to make one film and coming out with another one which always is of interest for me um so yeah i i really enjoy that film wow i i don't think i'd even heard of that documentary before it so it's documenting just a single tour yeah it's mostly i'd think like the second half of the film is all on that at that concert at the altamont speedway but it is kind of following them on tour um you also get like a cool moment where i think it's to them i can't remember i don't think they they're performing it i think you hear the rolling stones listen to their uh uh, wild horses like the first time they listen to the whole arrangement put together you kind of listen to them in this you watch them in the studio listening to it and it's a cool moment um so yeah you're kind of following the stones through that those few months in 1969 and it all concludes with that tragedy at the at the concert wow that that i mean not to make it all about me but <laughs> that that's interesting that also 1969 same year as the wild bunch and like I said, the the story of the Wild Bunch, you could look at it as like the death of the cowboy, basically, where it's like this is this is the end of the Wild West, essentially, and it sounds like that was kind of an end of an era story, um, mm-hmm. at least like that seems like the statement they were trying to make with you know ending the movie that way in particular. Yeah, I mean, actually, I don't know how you would build a movie around like if you put that right in the middle. It's like, yeah. what, how the <laughs> fuck am I supposed to feel about that? <laughs> Yeah, then now the I next can't scene enjoy just, the music. Yeah, the next scene is just them at another concert playing yeah. "Start Me Up" or whatever. Yeah, right. that would—that's what you would do. Just hard cut. Stop me up. Yeah. <laughs> the next day. <laughs> no, so, that would yeah. be—that would be an example of really, really horrendous editing. But, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know where else. If you were going to put that footage in that particular film, I—I I think that's the only respectful way you could include it. Um, and in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some people objected to that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is interesting that they they show his reaction to the playback because it's like, I don't know, it's like you're you're the person creating the hysteria, creating the fervor. Like it probably creates a sense of blame like on you or just a little bit anyway. It's like he, he's yeah. not at fault, but at the same time, it's like if if those people weren't gathered there with that particular energy with those particular people serving as security detail, that person would still be alive. Mm-hmm. It's like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're a big fan of the song under my thumb, might want to avoid cause, uh, it might ruin that song forever. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. If, 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 uh, if you have synesthesia or something and, <laughs> and you get your audios and your visuals, like you get those wires crossed, <laughs> maybe don't. Do yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, luckily, under my thumb is not like top tier Rolling Stone song for me. So it's like, you know, at least the the tragedy didn't happen while they were performing "Sympathy for the Devil" or something like that. That would be, that that would that would not be good because uh, I love that song. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it's impossible for me to not ask this question, Brad. If you're to you know name a couple of your favorite stone songs what do you think they'd be 
Uh, definitely Sympathy for the Devil is up there for me as my favorite. I like uh, Let It Bleed. That's another one. Uh, those two are up there for me. Um, I'm trying to think. Jumpin' Jack Flash is another great one. I do like Wild Horses. I know I just brought that up. Wild Horses is a great one. Um, specifically, the Susan Boyle rendition is uh, amazing on America's Got Talent. <laughs> so... Angie, Angie, Angie is a good, Angie is another great one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've always been partial to Jumpin' Jack Flash as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Brown Sugar is a good one. Yeah. And Paint It Black has a very, very special place in my heart. Um, Not because I have a black heart, but um, I have a friend who, uh, that's his go-to karaoke song. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And uh, he does a, he does his own take on it. Um, not sure if I'd classify it as good, but it's passionate. <laughs> uh, yep, so if cool, he's listening, cool. no, no offense. But I, I thoroughly enjoy your, your vocal performances and I miss <laughs> them dearly. <laughs> but, um, so maybe, maybe this should be a, an ongoing thing for our tales from the shelf episodes. Um, let's do a little wrap up here, Brad. Um, instead of like, going at like speaking at length about our stuff let's just take some of the leftovers some of the honorable mentions and just like just zip through them so uh i'll go first uh, so i can give you some time to compile your thoughts here uh so i actually have an entire subcategory here uh that i didn't touch this time around maybe next time um but these are these are movies with scenes that i like i said these have standout scenes however these are movies that i end up putting in my player and uh I end up just watching the whole damn thing just because of how good they are or how mm-hmm. much they mean to me or what have you. Uh, so just in rapid fire here, uh, the entirety of the Rocky franchise. Um, when I was younger and I had a DVD box set of Rocky 1 through 5 because those were the only ones that existed at the time, uh, I used to just watch the fight scenes, like the final fight scenes mostly. Um, but these days it's just like, no, I'm just going to fucking watch all the Rockies. I don't need an excuse. Uh, similarly... I have the Alien Anthology box set. However, in this case, I'm only explicitly speaking about Aliens uh, from 1986 because I can't tell you how, how many times I tried to just put this disc in and just watch, like, one bit of it. It's just like, well, shit, now I just have to watch the whole thing. It's yeah. like, I think the last time that happened, all I wanted to watch, um, I was curious about the suspense. I was talking about Hitchcock and whatnot. I was curious about the edit uh, the editing uh, of the initial sequence where they the, the Marines encounter the aliens. I just wanted to key in on that. And then I just like said, fuck it. Let's watch the whole thing. <laughs> um, that, I love that movie. It's one of my top five probably. Uh, and then I have the Indiana Jones, the complete adventures box set. Uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has not been opened. <laughs> but uh, the reason I bring that up is because uh, so often, uh, when I'm talking about standout scenes and or set pieces in films, uh, the prototypical example I go to is always truck chase. Uh, if I say the words truck chase and you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so when I think of set piece cinema, Raiders is often the one I go to and truck chase is is special because not only does the tr- not only is the truck chase awesome, the scene immediately before that 
and the scene immediately before that scene are both classics. So it's just like it's one of those things. It's like fuck. I guess I'm just watching Indiana Jones. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Saving Private Ryan, the Omaha Beach landing, first twenty minutes or whatever. Goddamn. I guess I'm watching World War Two. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, that's another uh, sound system movie that. If I was to get a surround sound, that might be the first disc I put in there. Um, then, lastly, Jurassic Park T Rex sequence. Yeah, may as well just watch Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, I so, mean, anyway, you could do a whole uh, episode on standout Spielberg sequences. Cause, I actually uh, almost did that. Like, I grabbed yeah. Jaws for a minute there, and I was like, no. I, every time I put in Jaws, I know I'm watching Jaws. There's not a single moment <laughs> of Jaws I want to watch. It's, I just mm-hmm. want to watch Jaws. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, what you got? Rapid fire, Brad. Yeah, I just got a few here. Uh, I've got uh, Heat, Michael Mann's Heat, which uh, the bank, <laughs> bank robbery sequence is awesome, and uh, also the drive-in shootout. Oh, I love the 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 truck going over. The- <laughs> nice. <laughs> we were on the same page there. We were on the same page. Yeah, there. The, the drive-in sequence is great too. I love the music that plays over that sequence. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great one. And then uh, this one is kind of a twofer. It's uh, Creep Show and Creep Show 2. It might be a little cheating to do an anthology film because it's kind of like made for, you know, a single sequence to stand out. Um, but uh, for me, the first Creep Show, I, I, I always thought this was like the clear winner. But apparently I've heard some people say that it's their least favorite segment is the, the cockroach uh, one at the end, which is my personal favorite. I, I really like that sequence and then uh in creep show two the the, the raft sequence uh is the gave one me that nightmares is... gave me yeah. nightmares <laughs> yeah and that's it's great yeah okay well if that's all you got i'm gonna i'm just gonna keep rolling here brad <laughs> go for it go for it yeah ernest goes to jail <laughs> ernest p whirl electro man <laughs> enough said uh universal soldier day of reckoning uh the sporting goods store fight uh, look it up on YouTube. It's wonderful. Okay. Atomic Blonde. Uh, That's he, a, that is a good one. That he, is a... Do I own that? <laughs> I don't own that. Because I, I might... If I don't... If I own that... If I had owned that movie, I would have grabbed that. That is a good one. Yeah. Uh, the car chase into the uh, apartment complex. It's all one sequence. It's all... It's like a 10-minute stretch of the movie that... Um, Kyle actually was a huge part of me finding finding greater appreciation for this film. But um, yeah, I, I've come around to enjoying the rest of the film, but that 10-minute stretch is mm, money. Um, Akira, uh, the opening bike chase. Holy shit. That's like next-level animation. Um, the music that plays over that sequence is like burned into my fucking brain. Uh, and then I have a whole stack of fighting. <laughs> so this is all the shit I was holding back for two hours. Uh, so I have a a pair here: Wheels on Meals and Dragons Forever. Uh, so these are notable as being uh, two Jackie Chan films that also happen to feature the Three Musketeers, uh, Yoon Biao and Samuel Hung, in addition to Jackie Chan himself. Uh, these movies both include final battles between Jackie Chan and Benny the Jet Urquidez, uh, who if if you don't know who that is, if I showed you a picture of him, you might recognize him because he's he's been in stuff you've seen. Um, Wheels on Meals, in particular, the the climactic battle between the two of them has often been regarded as like 
the finest three minutes of martial arts cinema ever. Um, it's pretty fucking good. I mean, we've mm-hmm. come a long way, but for 1982 and for Jackie Chan not doing his you know crazy acrobatic shit, like straight up just throwing hands with somebody, it's special. Uh, check yeah. it out, Brett. Um, rest of the movie, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've... Juroni Kenshin, uh, the third movie in the franchise, which is getting two more movies in the series as we speak. I think it's coming out in Japanese theaters very shortly. 20 minutes of just swords bashing on people. It's like a five-on-one sword, swords on a mummy man. Like nice. a man wrapped in bandages with, with fireworks and shit and a serrated sword. It's it's nuts. It They take like dozens of chapters of the manga and several episodes of the anime and condense it into one 20 minute just fucking fight <laughs> in at the end of your movie it's like that's how you end a goddamn movie <laughs> it's spectacular <laughs> um we have the the jason Bourne trilogy um i also have jason Bourne on there but uh specifically uh the fight between uh jason Bourne and the character desh uh, who is played by joey ansa in uh the Bourne ultimatum uh, that fight sequence, while the sound editing is utter crap, <laughs> there there are like straight up like Goldeneye hit sounds in that movie. Like when you when you chop each other in a, in slappers only mode, th- that sound is in this fight. It's pitiful. Yikes. It's like sound editor needed to be fired. Um, yeah. But for its day, for like 2007 or whatever, like really remarkable stuff by Hollywood standards. Um, Flashpoint, we did an entire episode on this for catching up on cinema. Donnie Yen and Colin Cho throwing hands for seven fucking minutes. Wonderful. Wonderful mixed martial arts. Early instance of mixed martial arts in Hong Kong cinema. Raid 2, duh. Not I, I thought about cinema. grabbing that one. I thought that... I wasn't sure if that'd be too obvious. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Avengement, starring Scott Adkins. Um, the... Uh, you can actually find this on YouTube, Brad, and I would highly yeah. encourage you to do so. Um, and I hope you're writing this shit down. Uh, <laughs> this has one of the best bar, like pub brawls. It is in the UK, so it's a pub. <laughs> okay. We are an, we are an international podcast, Brad. Uh, it's a it's a barroom brawl between like a dozen guys on one involving like bats and stools and shotguns and beer steins all the all the most wonderful things in the world but it's one of the very best of its kind um it's it's one of those things where you catch yourself laughing and you're just like oh my god like that's enough i think he's dead (laughs) it's 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 wonderful um Mm -hmm. it's a it's a really fun movie on top of that but yeah, this is de- this definitely has to be an ongoing thing for these Tales of the Shelf episodes. So uh, come yeah. come loaded for bear next time around, Brad, because um, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot there. <laughs> I can definitely do a part two of this, no problem. Very nice. I'm excited. <laughs> but I'm I'm hyped as a uh, Harrison from the Grief Burrito Podcast would say. Um, but yeah, that being said, I think it's about enough. Uh, standout scenes for one day so before we wrap up our tales from the shelf episode here uh brad you want to let the folks at home know where they can find you and your podcast yeah it's the cinema speak podcast uh we're on itunes stitcher spotify wherever you listen to shows just search for us uh if you want to follow us on social media it's at the cinema speak on twitter or Instagram Cinema Speak Podcast. And then uh, if you want to just find us online, it's cinemaspeak.libsyn.com. Well said. Thanks a lot, Brad. 
Uh, you're always welcome on the show, by the way. And uh, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hope, hope to have you back uh, sooner rather than later. But uh, that being said, uh, thank you so much, audience, for listening. But in the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have uh, an Instagram account at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as a Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those, and hopefully I'll get back to you in a jiffy. Uh, and the show is available on pretty much any podcasting platform you can imagine, so fucking Google it. Uh, but that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.